0: Hello there, sirvous. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about some of the violence escalating in northern Nigeria, recent events that are going on in Ethiopia, and China's energy crisis. All that and more, coming up. To the rapid-fire news. So, the EU has cut its agricultural and fishing trade ties with Morocco, and this comes over Morocco's role that it's played in uh, the West Sahara, which basically means the EU disapproves of Morocco's de facto annexation of the West Sahara, which technically means that they're taking Algeria's side on this issue, and I wonder if France has anything to do with that. You know, I, mean, I wonder, I wonder. But um yeah, so the EU has cut its trade ties, specifically for agriculture and fishing, I'm pretty sure. The other aspects of their trade are still going on, but we could see that change in the future, uh, given the step that has now been taken. Meanwhile, a woman has been shot in Afghanistan over her opposition to the new laws regarding women's educational opportunities in the country. Um, and from what I understand, it hasn't... They haven't gone all the way back to what it was before the U.S. invasion in the country, Uh, probably out of recognition that you can't really go all the way back. But uh, they've gotten pretty close, uh, as close as they feel that they can realistically, given that they've gotten a taste of what it's like to get an education. So they'll, they'll probably even be like underground women's education groups in the country from this point forward because a decent number of the women have been educated at least a generation uh, we've been there for 20 years so probably that's probably going to be something the new government the Islamic Emirates going to have to deal with for the foreseeable future it's pretty hard to put that cat back in the bag but uh yeah In the, to the north of Afghanistan we have Russia who has test-fired its new sub-launched hypersonic missile. I believe it's called the Tsarcon, or it's, it's an IR. Uh, so they're moving forward with their hypersonic ballistic missiles, uh, which will probably eventually be their air defense platforms, like maybe a S-600 or S-700, except it has hypersonic missiles and stuff. And now that would be a killer imagine that I remember watching uh, this one documentary this is a cold war documentary on the US blackbird I believe Uh, and so basically the way they made that plane uh, and made it able to survive being attacked with Soviet missiles was they made it they gave it the ability to move faster than the missiles so basically it would be high up in the sky they would be able to—you'd be able to detect that a missile had been fired at you, and you would just ramp up the speed until you were moving faster than a missile, and so it just couldn't catch you. And the Russians were really annoyed by it because they—they couldn't they <laughs> shoot it down, and it was just flying over their airspace. Uh, good times, not. <laughs> but um, I mean, when you have a hypersonic missile, though, suddenly think solutions like that workarounds like that can't be executed on because you're not out flying that missile so then it's just a matter of accuracy i guess so all these play into russia's strength and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future probably probably uh, a terrible development whenever that happens uh the outfitting of hypersonic missiles to Russia's air defense systems. Probably going to be terrible for the whatever is left of the Ukrainian Air Force. Uh, do they still have an Air Force? Yeah, well, if they do, it's not going anywhere. And it won't be going anywhere anytime soon. Poor Ukraine. But, uh, yeah. Uh, and on the other side of the continent known as Asia, China has ramped up its fighter jet sorties over Taiwan. Uh, most of them over Taiwan's airspace. Um, not over the main the island of Taiwan itself. Most of these happen over bodies of water that are officially recognized as Taiwanese. And the Chinese fly their planes over those. So technically that's flying over Taiwanese airspace. But um, there's also been... There's also been... Uh, China flying jets over the Taiwanese mainland itself. Um, So, in addition to that, I mean, I guess it's not necessarily addition, it's more so an escalation from flying over airspace that isn't over your populations, it's over your waters, to now flying sorties over your populated centers, over Taiwan itself. And so that's sort of the encroachment that's been happening. And I'll be honest, it's probably going to make whatever goes down between China and Taiwan work better for China. Because imagine, I'd imagine, that these planes aren't just flying over just to send a message. I'm pretty sure there's a good number of them that are doing reconnaissance. And they're doing because of the way that they're doing these flights, um, you would be the one to start the war if you shot them down. Uh, Or at least that's the perception from the point of the Taiwanese. uh, The perception being that China's looking for an excuse to go to war uh, when Taiwan itself is not ready at all. Um, I talked about it. I talk about it every now and then when I get around to this topic, which basically means almost every episode now... (laughs) They, I personally think they should have been preparing for this for a long time. It's nice that they're getting around to shoring up their defenses now, but they should have, by this point, they should already have a plan in place, a solid plan. Uh, They should have based their military strategy and their military doctrine around that. Um, They should know their geography inside and out. I'm talking the island. Uh, the waters around the island, what beaches are can and can't. Not, not what beaches are good for an amphibious landing, but what beaches can and can't be used for an amphibious landing because the, the Chinese are going to go wherever they can and can will be the key word of the day when that happens, not necessarily likely. And the Taiwanese should have plans A through Z by now and they should have A1, A2 through Z2 and A, and Z3 through A3 they should have been preparing for a very long time. And it seems now that uh, they're getting closer to the, the point of no return, which is the war. The war that we can, we can all see is coming at some point. And most, of, most of the contemporaries in this field will say that uh, China won't succeed. I bet against those people. And we'll see who's right. Uh, I think I will be. But um, and China is ramping up its fighter sorties over Taiwanese airspace. Uh, and to give you an idea of just how much we've seen this... Um, how far the escalation has gone, I should say. Uh, one of these was a 52 fighter jet sortie over Taiwanese airspace. 52. Uh, that's a raid. That is a raiding force right there. Um, and that is the largest that they've ever done. And we're seeing them slowly ramp this up. And probably they're also figuring out how many they can do this. How many planes can they coordinate it in the air at the same time? Um, the, the lowest ball estimates, of course, because they're not fielding large swaths of their air force for this. But they're getting an idea. Of what it would take to coordinate large numbers of planes. um, And bring them. Concentrate them over a specific area. To do a specific task. And the pilots themselves are probably seeing. What needs to be done. So they're getting experience. They're seeing the island of Taiwan. It's going to be almost like. Whenever this does break out. This war. It's going to be almost like. When the Japanese were doing practice runs on Pearl on a Pearl Harbor mock-up. So when the actual Pearl Harbor attack came, they were prepared. It's going to be like that. Except Taiwan. And instead of, instead of um, just taking a Navy out for a couple months and hoping for the best, they'll probably win the war on that strike. So... Lots of things, minor details that'll play into the bigger picture whenever they get around to it. Uh, that's China. Egypt is conducting, while we're talking about flights, Egypt is conducting commercial flights to Israel. The first uh, ever, I think. Maybe they were friendly before. Uh, they weren't, but um, these are some of the first uh, commercial flights to Israel. Meanwhile, back over to the east... Fumio Kashida has won the elections in Japan, becoming the country's 100th Prime Minister. And while we talked extensively about that, uh, we talked extensively last episode about, uh, some of the, some of the burdens that this new guy is gonna have to deal with, this winner. Um, it was sort of a follow-up to another episode where I asked the same questions, um... Well, when I propose the same scenarios that are likely to befall this new prime minister, Uh, and we have the new prime minister now, so he's going to have to deal with those uh, possibilities looming over his head. The biggest one, obviously, being China and Taiwan. And I, I guess we'll just ask him now, how do you conduct a losing war? I don't don't know if he's ready for that question. I don't know if the Japanese parliament is ready for that question. I don't know if the Japanese navy is ready for that question. I can guarantee you that uh, we here in America aren't ready for that question. Um, But I believe that's where we're headed. uh, Because China and Taiwan are on a collision course. And it's a matter of who decides to put themselves in in between. And what side they fall on. When the cookie crumbles and the chips fall where they may. So, Japan has its new prime minister. And he has lots of burdens. The foreign policy realm is going to be one of the biggest, potentially. We don't know when China is going to make their move. But when they make their move, it's going to be explosive. That's Japan. Russia, back to Russia, is considering building two nuclear plants in Turkey. Uh, and India and Australia are currently negotiating a new trade deal. So, lots of developments, primarily in Asia and East Asia. Um, and they all have they all have pretty significant consequence. I'll be honest. Uh, there's more militancy in Africa, of course, but um, hmm, I, I can't can't discern if it's an escalation uh, as a whole and we can definitely see the regional escalations but it seems like Africa's in a bit of a a bit of a bad spot and i know i'm surprising no one when i say that but i mean i mean there's lots of open conflict that has the potential to spawn even bigger conflicts around them and we're starting to see some of those bigger conflicts come to pass We see Ethiopia's in a civil war right now. We see France and a number of Central African countries are on a whole war path against Islamic militancy there. Probably going to be the basis of the new French Empire. We can see Egypt is anxious about the Nile. They're building up their military and there's only one country on on the hit list for them. So the timing of when they choose to strike Egypt, not Egypt, Ethiopia could screw, e- could either screw Ethiopia or screw them both. And that's, that's the real kicker, depending on the timing of when certain events take place, they can impact other events and set other things into motion. Uh, they can speed up or slow down certain developments and A lot of those speeding up and slowing down uh, still lead to conflict that I can see in the region And it will open doors for people outside and some inside the region to really make a stake uh, Make a stake Yeah, I guess Uh, maybe Really take a stake. I should say in their region a greater stake of their region and form the new order Whatever new order forms after the conflict around them so that they benefit from the new status quo. It seems like the old status quo is going out the window around the world. But that is the rapid-fire news and we'll get into the meat in just a moment. And we are back now we're going to talk about Nigeria's uh, crisis. That's sort of the best way I can put it. Uh, And I'll just get into it and you'll see why I call it a crisis. So, nearly 100 people are dead, and over 24 have been abducted, all this in northern Nigeria. And this comes with speculations of religious divisions between Muslims and Christians being a potential cause for this violence. And we've sort of been covering this violence uh, in much smaller scales in previous episodes, almost always in passing, and... Usually and only recently I've sort of put more attention on what's been going on because I've noticed it's just recurring and it gets bigger and worse In A couple episodes it led me. uh, I mean a couple episodes ago. It led me to ask is Nigeria in a civil war too and I don't know if We have specific uh, lines that we can draw as to which side is on what side um, but this speculation that it could be a Muslim-Christian thing, or at the very least a militant Islamic versus Christian thing, because it's always that differentiation. I mean that sort of fuels my suspicion. Um, but uh, regarding the these new speculations, I don't I actually I don't know if they're new. I just. It was brought to my attention while I was going through the news for this episode. um, This division between Muslims and Christians potentially being a cause of the violence. And I say it's highly possible. Uh, Mainly mainly due to the Islamic militancy that we can see is prevalent across the entire continent. Uh, We can see it in the countries directly north of Nigeria. We know Mozambique. ...has issues with Islamic militancy. Um, it's a bit of a mess across the continent. And we know that the Middle East certainly has issues with Islamic militancy. Although they managed to contain it better through their stronger states. They Their stronger states in the Middle East. Which is why Islamic militancy tends to be contained and bottled up there better... ...than what you see in Africa... Where a lot of the states there are weaker due to in their own internal divisions Oh mainly along tribal and ethnic lines, and I mean tribal not in the political sense, but tribal as in literally tribes Um, So they're divided internally Uh, Technically still part of the nation, but these tribes and ethnicities cross these boundaries and these lines and it leads to questions over national identity Some countries are doing better at forming that national identity than others, Um, Nigeria and Ethiopia being one of them. But those two; those are two of the strongest states uh, in Africa in terms of, and politically speaking, um, not necessarily militarily, but in terms of stability. Those are two of the strongest states in Africa, Uh, Morocco. Uh, Morocco, Egypt, South Africa, those would be other ones as well that we could add to that list. But all all of those countries are currently in their own crises right now. Morocco just ended diplomatic ties with Algeria. And that's probably going to lead to something in the future. Probably going to end in European intervention. Egypt is arming itself for... What's literally going to be a fight for its life. The Nile is Egypt, basically. I mean, all the people live next to the Nile. And if you don't have a Nile, you just have a desert. And if you only have a desert, and you don't have oil, then you're nothing. You're nothing. And the leaders of Egypt know this. And the leaders of Egypt know better than to allow this to happen to their country. They're arming themselves. And... Due to the way in which Ethiopia has gone about filling up the reservoirs on the dam, the renaissance dam They're filling them up fast instead of slow Which means a lot of the water gets redirected towards the reservoirs rather than going downstream Which means then the river dries up faster creating a problem for Egypt Both parties know this so both parties are acting accordingly And in accordance with their own interests. Ethiopia, um, due to what they've done in the past, and you can call it good for them or evil, whatever you want, but due to the actions they've taken in the past, there's no real going back now. They can't slow down the rate at which they're filling up the reservoirs. Enough damage has been done. Uh, And at this point, they're probably just not going to anyway. Uh, If if they were going to they would have agreed to do that before. So now they're on a collision course, Ethiopia and Egypt. Ethiopia is in the middle of a civil war right now. Sudan just narrowly avoided uh, its own civil conflict due to a political crisis. And that was a real miracle. We speculated on them falling apart politically and that could create more destabilization In that region, but just the conflict looming between Egypt and Ethiopia could ruin all that because you can only have a fight between Egypt and Ethiopia if you go through Sudan and Sudan's probably gonna be forced to pick sides and I don't I don't know which side they'll pick it seems like it's gonna be Ethiopia, but Ethiopia is in a civil war right now and Egypt when they're ready is gonna have a massive military do you side with the guy who's going to give you free energy? Or are you going to side with the guy who has tanks parked on your parked outside the fence? Um, probably going to side with the guy with the tanks. Even if that costs you the energy, you keep your sovereignty, hopefully. Because there's no guarantee those troops are going to leave. Egypt might just decide they're going to recreate the Egyptian empire. They'll, they'll name a new pharaoh. We, we could see it. We could really see it. I see changes coming in the future uh, on the other side of these conflicts. And there will be winners, and there will be lots and lots of losers. But those winners are going to make off like bandits. But, um, so, when we focus on these areas around the world that seem small, we look at the bigger picture, and we can see that these small things have consequences. Nigeria especially, they're the most populous country on the continent. And they're befalling. They're being besieged by these this violence in their own country. And it seems to me like they're either in or on very, very, very tip of being in a civil war, which means even more destabilization, which will invite in outside powers, be it non-state actors, or Wholesale governments with their own militaries stepping in on different sides of the conflict making it worse And that's that leads to destabilization of the people around you and it's just a It's just a nasty chain of events really So we see these conflicts we see these crises um, And they're really bad, but back to Nigeria back to Nigeria we see that it's primarily, this conflict is primarily concentrated in the north of Nigeria. Um, and I said that the potential that it's caused by religious divisions between Muslims and Christians is highly possible. Because of the militancy, namely Islamic militancy across the continent. And a lot of the destabilizations that that has caused. Um, and we can see that across the continent as well. Ethiopia is Christian. Egypt is Muslim, that's going to be a massive conflict in and of itself. So we can see it. We really can. Um, So it's highly possible that that could be one of the reasons why there's so much violence here and why it keeps getting worse, Uh, especially when uh, some of those Islamic militant groups are operating just north of Nigeria in the Sahel. Which is the string of countries from Niger to Mali, and I believe to West Sahara as well. But that string of countries is what I'm talking about when I talk about the Sahel. That That's the mainstay of the French military campaign against terrorism in West Africa. So, that's a whole conflict zone just north of Nigeria... And probably going to see some overlap between the groups operating there, some of the groups operating in northern Nigeria, or at least affiliation through ideology between the groups in the Sahel and the groups in northern Nigeria causing the violence. It's just a cycle of violence. And until there's a winner, there won't be a new order. The order in Africa is breaking down fast. And as tensions rise... Everywhere else, the regional and global orders we've seen before are also going to break down. I imagine the Taiwan crisis is going to be the end of the U.S.-led order in Asia, because that's a losing war, and China's going to be the victim. And they're going to be the arbiter of East Asia, but that's probably going to harden the resolve of countries like Japan, Australia, and India to counterbalance China China. And the countries in between are going to play mediator, namely Singapore. They're going to get their concessions where they can, and Japan and Australia are going to go all in on Indian industrialization, which will probably have its own consequences later, later on down the line, uh, and we might see coalitions against India when that happens. But we can we can see the end in sight of the order that we have seen and we've come to know as normal. And events like these in Nigeria sort of point to regional instances of it breaking down. Uh, now, I've talked about how what's going on in Nigeria fuels my speculation that they're in a civil war. But I will continue to observe events here to see if I'm proven right on this one or if I'm just overhyping the issue in Nigeria specifically. But... Uh, I mean what I say when I say that the regional orders around the world are breaking down and there's gonna be conflict and then on the other side of those conflict there's gonna be there's gonna be really really big winners and really really big losers. And I'll just do my best to see if I can figure out who's gonna be the winner and who's gonna be the losers. I have my bets. I, I, China's going through a bit of a rough time. Russia's gonna gonna be going through a bit of a rough time. But I still see ways out for them. Uh, still see ways out. Chi- for China, it's colonialism. For Russia, it is securing its former Soviet borders. And giving themselves the time to repair their demography. That's what I see. So... Yeah, so that's, uh, that's Nigeria, and I guess now we move on to, uh, Ethiopia, and perhaps we'll continue the theme of regional orders breaking down, or, or I guess regional areas of the global order breaking down. How should I phrase that? The, the global order breaking down at regional levels. There we go, there we go, there that makes more sense in continuity with every other thing i've said the global order that is us led everyone stays relatively peaceful with one another uh, meanwhile the us is in a state of almost constant war and subsidizes the whole thing that order coming to an end and we see regional breakdowns we're going to see we're going to see it in asia we've seen it in the middle east already Probably We're probably witnessing it in Europe whenever Russia starts to make its moves uh, and we saw Germany break with the U.S. over the issue of Nord Stream. France is upset by the AUKUS deal, so they're going their own way and Africa is in a state of straight-up conflict, just straight-up across the board. We're seeing the global order break down at regional levels and at different intervals within those regions. But in Ethiopia, we'll, we'll just read here, Ethiopia it has expelled last week officials from the UN Humanitarian Affairs Office. Uh, not just them, they expelled UN officials from the Humanitarian Affairs Office, the Human Rights Office, and the UN Children's Fund. And that's seven officials in total. That they expelled. Now, these officials were expelled on accusations of meddling in Ethiopia's internal affairs. Specifically, Ethiopia refers to the attempts that were being made by these UN officials to gain access to the Tigray region. Uh, and to those who don't know, that's the the place where Ethiopia is currently fighting a civil war, that has almost gone on for a whole year now. Uh, A civil war that's not going too well for Ethiopia itself at the moment. So obviously they said no, uh, followed by a a sound get off my property, and the UN officials had to leave. Now that sparked uh, some outrage and really just sparked shock uh, in the minds of the UN officials and the UN in general uh, that this could happen. And I... ...could have told you that this would happen. I mean, it's sort of the same thing with China and the Uyghurs... ...in Xinjiang. Countries, when they're going through things like these... ...they don't want outsiders to see. Now, obviously, uh, the outsiders are going to want to see... And ...the outsiders who are interested are going to want to see. And so it's just a clash of interests... ...and the countries that you're going into... Are obviously gonna have more power to exert their influence over yours uh, so yeah so I could have told you this would happen but uh, you know I'm not in the UN so <laughs> but uh <clears throat> I do wonder what it would be like uh, aside from the paperwork and all the boring stuff would it be like if you know some of them were to listen to me yes me may- Maybe I'd be uh, maybe I'd be a Bismarck. Yeah, I think I'd, I think Bismarck would be pretty cool. <laughs> American Bismarck. But uh, anyway, <laughs> we're still on Ethiopia though, uh, because aside from getting into a row with the UN and technically winning. Oh wow, I didn't think of it that way. They <laughs> they won. Uh, so Ethiopia won the UN zero. Um, but um, now, onto to a separate topic in Ethiopia, I've put them together because it's the same country, Ethiopia's election results. Recently, they held new parliamentary elections, and the Prosperity Party uh, has won the majority in the country with, get this, 410 seats. Now, this is the same party that's been in charge uh, over the course of the Civil War breaking out and over the course of the federal government's army being uh, effect- abolished by the Tigray rebels. The, no, the Tigray didn't abolish the army, but they, they destroyed a good chunk of it, so I, I'm using my hyperbole here. But, <laughs> but yeah, th- this is the party that was in charge and oversaw all that happening. And the fact that they've been re-elected, rather than being uh, destroyed in the elections, sort of says a lot about the rest of the country being on the same page, um, given that there were speculations when the Tigray Rebellion first broke out, that it could lead to more ethnic-based re- rebellions within Ethiopia. And that was a real possibility, given if you look at an ethnic map of Ethiopia... You can see why. There's a whole bunch of ethnicities, and a lot of them are concentrated in specific regions in the country, so that sort of ethnic-based nationalism and secessionism was a a real possibility in other parts of the country. And there was real doubts as to whether or not Ethiopia would be able to put itself back together if they left. There was real concern over this. Um, but this election shows that for the time being, they don't have to worry about that and they can focus their energies on ending the war. Preferably well, by reintegrating Tibet, uh, not Tibet, <laughs> <laughs> into reintegrating Tigray into Ethiopia again. Um, they've won in a landslide, it's a landslide. and. For context on how big that 410 seats is Ethiopia's Parliament currently has 547 seats and of those 22 are held in reserve For minority groups, so that they always have representation. These are the smaller minority groups in the country so they will always have representation Uh, but this means effectively that only 25 seats are actually available for majority elections uh, across the country. Uh, yes. So only 525 of these seats are available for nationwide m- elections that are determined at a nationwide level, not just a specific minority election. So that's even less seats and that they've won more of, and I did the math, and the Prosperity Party effectively won seventy-eight percent of the vote. Seventy-eight percent of the vote. Now, if that's not a landslide, I don't know what is. Um, and this has ultimately led to Abi Ahmad, uh, not Ahmad, Abi Ahmed. There we go. Just uh, getting getting my uh, English back together, you know. I say that I speak it, but you know every now and then we have to we have to call it into question. but uh, <laughs> Abi Ahmed has been reinstated as the country's prime minister, likely for the next five years, unless unless he either resigns or gets a vote of no confidence. Uh, both of which are possible. Should the civil war take a turn for the worse uh, and worse in the eyes of the federal government, I should say because worse for them is better for Tigray. Uh, I'd imagine another disastrous defeat, like what they suffered a couple months back, which enabled the Tigray to go on the offensive into other parts of Ethiopia outside of Tigray itself. I imagine a a few more of those, and we might see this man resign. Or we might see calls for him to resign, and even the threat of a no-confidence vote by opposition outside and within his party to get certain legislation passed or even just the threat of doing it to get rid of him. that That's a possibility we have to take into account. But for the time being, it looks like he's going to be in here for the next five years. And it looked I mean, he's probably going to oversee the end of the Civil War. Uh, it's mountains and hills, so this is... Uh, emphasized. this is going to drag on for a bit, even though the uh, the, the level of armament is less than what we would have seen in, say if like I don't know the US had a civil war again or Russia Or even China if any of those had a civil war uh, but He's probably gonna be the guy to oversee the end of the war and If he's victorious He's probably gonna go down as a national hero obviously not in the eyes of the people living in Tigray Uh, or or the people fighting, actively shooting at the Ethiopian military right now on behalf of Tigray, it's probably not going to be a hero to them, but for the rest of the country, who've given him and his party this mandate, hey, he's going to go down in history. But, it looks like Ethiopia has their Lincoln, but now we must see if he'll be able to finish the fight on Ethiopia's terms and reunite the country, or... If, on the flip side, he'll be the man responsible for Ethiopia's defeat to Tigray. Now that could open up a can of worms where those other minority groups who are concentrated in specific regions throughout Ethiopia. If, the, if Ethiopia loses this war, then we might see a resurgence of those fears uh, because those people might decide that maybe it's time to leave maybe it's time to leave now that's a threat looming in the background but for the next probably five years you know you can never tell with war but for the next five years and we'll just say five because that's how long this uh, term lasts the next five years Ethiopia is going to be on the same page against Tigray not with Tigray so we'll, we'll see where this goes we'll see where this goes History is about to be made in Ethiopia. So, now then, we shall move on to... Now we get on to, get on to, get on to China's energy crisis. And this is a pretty big one, pretty big one. And we'll just, uh, we'll get into it. So, last week, nationwide brownouts hit China... This is the mainland, not Taiwan, for you Taiwan stands out there. It hit China really, really hard, and it brought large swaths of their industrial production to a halt. And that's probably going to accentuate supply chain problems around the world. And it's probably going to take a while, a couple months, for us to feel the effects of that. But I reckon it is coming, and it's not going to be fun. Uh, definitely not any more fun than it is for the people in China. The brownouts, that is, these massive reductions in the electricity available to any given point of consumption, that is, houses, factories, offices, stores, etc. These brownouts have reportedly affected upwards of 20 provinces in China. 20 provinces in China. Now, think U.S. states. And then put that in the context uh, and to give you an idea of how major that is I guess context is the theme of this episode China has 23 provinces along with four regions under direct control of Beijing that is the capital not the province five autonomous regions and two special administrative regions that is Hong Kong and Macau. So, of this, that is, what, 24, 20, mm, 34, 34 regions in total, uh, 23 of those are provinces, and in 20 provinces, they're having brownouts, so this is huge, this is ridiculously huge, it is massive. And I guess that context gives you an idea of how big it is, specifically for China, and maybe even how big it might be for us. Because it is so big of a problem that it led China to ask its ally, Russia, to increase their energy exports to China. Now, the Russians, in response to this, have committed to send as much as uh, three times the current energy supply that they're already giving to china they're promising to triple that for the month of october and i imagine iran and kazakhstan won't be too far behind in their export increases either so this energy crisis in china is going to be bad for them in the short term and if it drags on it's going to be bad for them in the long term Uh, Because if there's no power in China, you can't manufacture there. So that might drive even more companies and factories out of China. Which is definitely something that the Chinese government doesn't want, at least not yet. They want to copy and recreate industries before they leave. uh, Before they screw them and force them to leave. And this might rob them of the opportunity to do that. But, but... They have lots of energy-rich neighbors, uh, namely Russia and Kazakhstan. There's also Azerbaijan. Uh, Azerbaijan's a bit farther away, but Iran. Iran is there too. Now, Iran's energy exports aren't too great right now, but like I've speculated before, China And their energy demand is probably going to single-handedly revive the Iranian oil industry. And now China has an energy crisis, and they need three times the energy from Russia, which probably still isn't going to cut it. It just probably isn't. Which means they're going to need more exports coming out of uh, Kazakhstan, more exports coming out of Iran, and you know what, the Iranian oil industry is more than happy to accommodate, uh, although it won't necessarily be exclusive to just those countries that I've mentioned, they'll probably reach out to Arabia as well, and the UAE, and basically every oil producing country in the world, but this could be a massive boon for the countries that get in uh, faster, and the countries that get in with better favor with China, uh, who already have better favor I should say I should say like Iran Russia and Kazakhstan they're gonna make off like bandits especially Russia oh my goodness three times the exports to China oh wow all these energy industries are gonna have a whole a boom and it's probably gonna drive global oil prices down uh, which might be good for us here in the states so that depends uh, really does. But... But... This is, it'll be good for China. It'll definitely be good for China. That they've reached out to all these countries already. And courtesy of the infrastructure projects. A lot of them that they've built already. That might ease the flow of the overland... Energy routes into China. And... We might see the Silk Road get put to the test. Will it be able to accommodate all of that energy? Mm, uh, the pipelines probably will. Uh, as far as Iran, who the infrastructure hasn't, the, infra- the infrastructure projects haven't completed yet. Uh, not enough of them, anyway, to make that difference. They're probably gonna have to go by sea, uh, and it's gonna take them a while to sail around India to get to China. At least a couple, uh, a couple months. So, while China buying Iranian oil is going to be great, and even buying Arabian oil is going to be great for Arabia, it's ultimately going to be Russia and Kazakhstan that keeps China in the fight, for now. And that's probably going to come with a lot of favor. And favor breeds favors. There will be a moment where this favor and this debt and I mean that in the figurative term, not necessarily the literal term of debt, but sort of this debt that they're going to owe Russia, because Russia's going to be the big one, let's just be honest, it's probably going to get called in at some point in the future. It's going to be there. The Russians are going to have it. They help China in their moment of need. And when Russia finds itself in its own moment of need, it might ask China, to. it might cash in, on that favor, maybe when Russia decides they're gonna make their move for Ukraine, they're gonna say, Hey, we're gonna do this, and we need a distraction. We know, hey, you want Taiwan? Well, maybe uh, and they, they slide them a couple bills, so a couple dollar bills, I should say. Maybe, uh, maybe now's the time to make your move, huh? And take the heat off of us, why don't you? And China will be like, Say less now. <laughs> Now, that is a wild speculation, but it's a possibility. It's a possibility. But more likely that sort of favor will be cashed in in terms of soft power more than anything else, rather than a physical exchange of goods and favors. But it's there. This is huge. This is going to cause massive disruptions to supply chains, which are already hurt. These supply chains are already hurt. There. They've been abused over the course of the last year, and now they're getting hit like this again. Uh, Cause thing about the supplies that are coming out of China—they come out of China, but then they're restricted due to COVID restrictions in other countries. So now what you're getting are restrictions due to COVID, uh, and I, I, you know, I really emphasize the lockdowns and restrictions over the virus itself, but. These restrictions, which hurt supply chains from beyond China in tandem with energy shortages within China that grinds production to home. Because the supply chains were hurt, but the supplies were there. They just weren't being delivered. Now we're going to have a actual shortage of whatever supplies people were trying to get that come out of China. That's gonna hurt, that's gonna hurt a lot, but it's gonna come with opportunity. It's gonna come with opportunity in the form of manufacturing at home. Because if if China has to demand higher prices, or if the price of the goods coming out of China go up just due to operating costs of factories being idle because there's not enough energy, or the energy they have is only enough to produce a much smaller amount, In a given period of time, price is going to go up, which makes other countries suddenly competitive with China in terms of the cost of producing. So we might see another wave of industries and manufacturing leave China. And, you know, if countries are smart, they'll pick up on that and they'll capitalize on that and grab an industry or two and really hone in on them. I certainly wish my government could I don't know I really don't know what they're up to I know that what they want to do is to contain China and to sort of repair relations that were strained under Trump because Trump tried to take the country in a different direction Um, and these folks want to go back to what it was before Trump so They want more, and the way they're doing it, the way they're going about it, is more alliances and more commitments to sort of try to reassure people that America's going to be there when they need America. Um, Whether or not those forces are going to win out in the end, they're questionable, especially with what happened in Afghanistan. People are asking the question, why are we there? Why are we in all these countries? I'm starting to hear... More and more of these analysts say the I-word. They're saying the I-word, people. Isolationism? Oh, they're saying it dismissively, of course. They, 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 uh, the vast majority of the people in my field of work uh, disagree with the idea of the U.S. even being isolationist. But the fact that they're saying the word now, where previously they didn't feel the need to even bring it up, says a lot. About the sentiments that they are observing in the country individually, let alone what it might actually be in real life. I know, that means I'm ahead of the curb on this one. And I have a feeling that should something go down in Taiwan, uh, similar concerns will be going to be raised. And it might even tip the balance uh, in favor of a renewed isolationism. I don't know yet, but that's a possibility. All about possibilities and speculations. and, 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 and But we spe- we specialize in that. Speculation is always the fun part. Uh, especially when you're... Especially when you're talking about countries. And what they can and can't do. What they think they can and can't do. And then sort of... Watching and waiting to see what they really can and can't do. It's a blast. I'll just say that. Ah. So... Lots of, uh, lots of problems, really. Just lots of problems. Uh, lights at the, in the end of certain tunnels. See Ethiopia's Prosperity Party just got a massive mandate. Japan has a new Prime Minister and they didn't go through a political crisis. Which could have been possible. But now that Prime Minister's gonna have to deal with some of those realities that I proposed, they might have to deal with. Uh, and they might get blindsided by them, but I think I've laid out enough of them that they should probably be aware of. Again, Taiwan and China are gonna be the biggest one. They probably already know that, and maybe they have a plan, maybe they don't. I don't know. I just know that the this guy, this new guy, what's his name? what's his name? Fumio Kashida. He might be the guy in charge of, of Japan. ...when China decides they're going to take Taiwan. And he might find himself in a very uncomfortable position... ...where he's considering... ...whether or not to commit Japanese aid... ...to Taiwan. And that's a very uncomfortable position. So now it looks like it may fall to his shoulders. Maybe it's going to fall to his uh, successor. But now we have a name. Uh, we have a name now. But, uh, Yes... We see uh, the global order breaking down at regional levels and in different ways at different regions, I should say. Um, In the Middle East and in Asia, it seems more so in the form of... Well, actually, no. In Europe, it seems more so political. Uh, Sort of a political breaking away where they just stop cooperating with the things the U.S. wants... Uh, whether that's Germany over Nord Stream 2, whether that's France over the submarine deal. In Australia, you're sort of breaking away politically. But not necessarily uh, any conflict, at least not yet. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Asia, there is the threat of a major conflict and showdown Uh There's the threat of just China being this looming superpower in the region, and other countries are responding by coming together. Japan, Australia, and India, without the United States, were just due to their own geostrategic interests being bound together. The US comes in and formalizes the Quad, but I had noticed that they came together before. See, no one talked about the Quad when Japan rewrote its constitution and said we can go to war to defend an ally who's a Japanese ally, answer, whoever the Japanese want. No one talked about the Quad when Japan and India signed a 10-year military pact. No one was talking about the Quad when China and Australia got into a trade war. And Australia is looking for new partners, and it's probably going to be India, just due to the vastness of their consumption, and their attempts at industrialization. They're going to need the raw materials. No one was talking about the Quad when those three countries found themselves in the same boat. It was only when the U.S. showed up that people started talking about the Quad. But I had noticed that those three were together already. In a sort of looser sense. India and Japan were uh, linked by a whole military pact. But Australia being there as well, in a looser sense, I had already observed that. The geostrategic interests of these countries had already brought them together against China. As a counterbalance to China. And that's going to breed tension. It's already... It's already breeding tension, I should say. But interestingly, it has led them, at least prior to the the Quad showing up, and by that I mean the United States showing up and giving its attention to the region, it led them to act on their own. And I think we're going to start seeing more of that, where countries start acting on their own, even when they're in line with the United States. That's sort of what we see in Asia. Countries are starting to to wake up to the fact that they need to they, they need to take care of themselves Taiwan woke up and now they're they're throwing money at their military Japan has a navy India has an army Australia has uh, they have raw materials but they need a market and now they're worried about the defense they're looking they look for submarine deals they were going to get it with France but then the US shows up and they decide hey we're going to go with the United States. We're going to go with Britain. So countries were acting on their own in Asia. In Africa, We I talked about how the order there is broken down completely and that there's just conflict everywhere. There's conflict. The U.S. is damn near absent in Africa. So that's probably the reason why this is the first region where the U.S.-led order has sort of broken down, There's no U.S. presence there to uphold it or prolong it. And there's going to be big winners. Africa is a rich continent. It has over a billion people. But the the strongest states in Africa are not strong enough to fight against the disruptive forces at play. They're just not. And we can observe that they're not because countries like Nigeria and Ethiopia are in turmoil right now in civil conflict. Egypt Egypt's military grows by the second. Morocco and Algeria are not even on speaking terms anymore. There's just conflict after the conflict after conflict and looming conflict after looming conflict after looming conflict. Uh, I guess South Africa's the only and Madagascar are the only ones that sort of escape this. But South Africa is going through its own internal issues right now regarding race. Uh, and I guess that's just going to be endemic to them for the the foreseeable future. So really, that just leaves Madagascar. Madagascar is the only one that is separate from all that. So regional order in Africa, broken down. Regional order in Asia being physically reshaped, forcibly reshaped, I should say, by geostrategic interest uh, of other countries not wanting to be dominated by China and seeking to create a balance. So we're probably going to see a, a Asian equivalent to the balance of power that we saw in Europe for in the last 500 years where they would always seek to balance powers. And speaking of Europe, where the military dynamic is much more absent than a lot of the other regions at least for Western and Central Europe The political dynamic is that of breaking away from the U.S., not necessarily just acting on their own and then falling in line with the U.S. later, but breaking from the U.S. to act on their own. Britain did not consult the U.S. when they sent a destroyer to the Crimean Peninsula. They didn't consult the U.S. when they sent a carrier battle group a small one, but it won a carrier battle group to the South China Sea and they went their own they didn't they weren't necessarily invited by the US to AUKUS, they but they showed up they showed up and they were a key player they worked with the US as a as a senior partner uh, the US and the UK being senior partners and the Australians being the junior partner in that. To completely offset French influence in Australia with the help of the United States. But you can see countries, this Britain, this country, Britain acting on its own. France, they're in Lebanon. They're in West Africa. They're in the Eastern Mediterranean. They were in Australia trying to negotiate a deal. They're in all these places acting independently. On their own um, and they were trying to work with the US but now they've broken away to act individually France is now trying to build up a EU army I don't think they'll be successful at that but I don't think that's gonna stop them from continuing to go their own path they're probably just gonna go France not not France and the US not the EU but just France and we can see them breaking away We saw Germany break away over Nord Stream 2 because their interests determined they needed energy. They needed energy. And the easiest way to get it was through Russia. And so no matter the sanctions, no matter the diplomatic fallout, no matter the criticisms, no matter the berating and insult they got, They followed through, they followed that project through to the end, and now it's complete. Completely against whatever the United States wanted from that region, but it's complete now. Germany broke from the U.S. to go its own way. not not quite to the same extent that France is, or even Britain, who's somewhere in between Germany and France in that aspect but you can really start seeing it happen you can really see it start to happen um and then there's the Middle East where they're somewhere in between say I mean geographically and in the sense of what's happening with the US led order in the region they're really between all three there's lots of conflict there are states that emphasize the political dynamic to pursue their interests rather than military. Then there's the balancing of powers. You have a new block between Russia and the Iranian sphere of influence to counterbalance the American alliances in the area. So you have the balance of power politics that you see in Asia forming. You have the constant conflict Low-level conflict, mind you, that we see in Africa. And the looming conflict that you see in Africa and Asia as well. And you have the smaller countries playing up the political dynamics to go their own way. Um, we haven't quite seen them break from the U.S. Actually, no. Saudi Arabia. They've broken from the U.S. to go their own way. Uh, Politically speaking, not militarily. They've broken from the notion that they must be hostile to Syria, must be hostile to Yemen. They've broken from that. They're reconsolidating. They're even trying a reproachment with Syria and Iran of all countries. That's not a U.S. idea. They've broken from the U.S. to pursue those because it's in their interest to do so. But they're doing it politically. As to try to maintain the U.S. presence militarily. So you can see that European aspect in the Middle East. You can see Turkey breaking from the U.S. to go its own way. They're getting more S-400s from Russia. They're talking more and more to Russia. But in order to do that, they have to sort of snub the U.S. to pursue relations with Russia. So we can in the Middle East we can see a mix of all three of those regions and In all three of those regions outside the Middle East we can see the breakdown in their peculiar ways the breakdown of the US led global order and We can even see some of the potential winners some of the potential winners we China India potentially Russia France, Britain? Maybe Germany, depends. I don't know too much about, I don't know about Germany, but France and Britain. Turkey? Maybe Persia? It's either going to be Egypt or Ethiopia. If Nigeria can keep itself together, they'll be a massive power in West Africa. China's going to be a massive power in Africa. We can we can really see it start to break through. And as time goes on, these break, these breakdowns of the global order get more and more serious, and it's probably going to devolve into something more akin to what we see in Africa around the world, where it's conflict. But on the other side of those conflicts, there will be many, many losers, and they'll be losing really badly, but... On the other side of those conflicts there will be winners and they will be really 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 big winners and we'll just have to watch and wait to see who those winners are but that is all I got for you today I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast the world is changing folks and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, High Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, until we meet again next Monday, Servus.